0: We've been looking at the book of Acts over, um, over the summer and before, and um, we get towards the end of the book. It's not the final sermon on this series, uh, but certainly, it certainly is sort of this part of the book of Acts, Acts 21 to 28, which is the end of the beginning of the church, really. There's bits of the Bible, let me just actually... Just One step back for a moment. The reason, and I know that you know this, but let me just reiterate it. The reason that the Christian church for 2,000 years, when they've gathered, in whatever way they have gathered, the reason that they've come and read the book together, the Bible together, is out of a deep-rooted belief that this book is not just historical, it's not just about what happened back then, but is the primary means of the way that God speaks to us. That actually, as we read ourselves into this story, then not only do we understand the faith, not only do we understand what it means about Jesus, but actually it becomes a means of allowing God to speak to us from His Word. So it becomes this dynamic kind of two-way process, and um, the, the uh, you know our part of the church. We would be the sort of uh, part of the church, and I'm sure many of you do this, but um, some of you will have a Bible at home that you've written in. Yeah? Do, do some of you do that? You've got bits that you've underlined. Yeah? It's all the good bits, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but we've got, I've got a Bible like that that I, I was given when I was 21, um, just a few years ago. And um, just, just, it's just falling apart. It has no spine. It, it, it barely has all the books of the Bible. It's kind of just falling apart. But in it are my comments about the things that I've read at a particular time when I feel, actually, I think that's something that I really need to hear. And I've underlined it and I've, I take it very seriously. That's why we read this stuff together. Because we're trying to understand, but we're also trying to hear God. So it's always interesting to me then that there's bits of the Bible that's really easy with. And I think if you do that thing of underlining, go and look at your own Bible, and you'll find the bits where it's easier to see that. And then there's bits of the Bible you go, there's nothing underlined here. (laughs) And interestingly, I think, this end part of the Acts of the Apostles is the bit where most of us would have very little underlined because it's confusing, it's confusing. It just feels like one thing after another, and one speech after another, and one journey after another. And you're reading it thinking, oh, if you're honest, you're reading it going, this is boring. <laughs> you wouldn't ever say that. Um, but it's kind of like, I can't make sense of it. I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't even know what Luke is trying to do. The interesting thing about the end of the book of Acts is, in truth, it's a bit of an anticlimax. The book of Acts begins with this brilliant coming of the Spirit, tongues, wind, flame, people getting saved. Wow, brilliant. And as you go through to the end of the Acts of the Apostles, you go, to be honest, this is a rubbish way of ending this story. But we've said that before. We said it before when we did that long series through Mark's Gospel. You may not remember me saying this, but I said it at the time. Mark's, the ending of Mark's gospel is no way to finish a story. Do you remember it? Verse 8, it's like, and the women said nothing because they were frightened. And you want to go, is that it? Is that how a story ends? Well, it's kind of interesting because when you read the gospel accounts of the resurrection, the brilliant resurrection of Jesus died dead for three days, rose from the dead... Yes, there are accounts of him appearing to people. Yes, there are. But actually, you know, the truth is, you read it and you go, do you know, it's not as." They don't spend as much time on that as they do the other stuff. Why? And certainly when you're reading the book of Acts, you get to the end and you think, this is not the climax I expected. It's confusing. It's turmoil. It feels like it's... It's just an ongoing battle. When Luke begins the book of Acts, he begins by saying, um, in my former book, I told you all about the things that Jesus began to do. And this book, I want to continue to tell you about the things that Jesus did through the church, by the Spirit. And I think that, and you know, it's not just my idea, lots of people would suggest this, one of the reasons that the book of Acts finishes as it does This latter part is because it's not the end of the story. There's a group of churches who sort of like collaborate together. And they've called themselves Acts 29. Which I kind of like. It's the idea that you're the 29th chapter. Do you see? This is not the big climactic end of the story. Because actually the story hasn't finished. It's passed to you. And if we go and meet the Lord before he comes again, we will pass the baton on to someone else. The story continues. It's never the end until it's the end. And in this section, what you've got are actually stories of Paul being on trial, Paul being in battles, Paul being um, uh, being arrested, and time and time again. And it's almost like every part of the mission of God is a battle that is well, is a hard-won battle. This is a, a little map of, uh, of what's going on. So in the years AD 35 to 40, by then, in chapter 1 to 6, most of the actions in Jerusalem And then it goes to Samaria and Judea, and that's where that is. And then through Cyprus and Antioch, about 40. And then 49 to 52, it's back into this sort of area that we now know as Turkey. And then 53 to 58 is that Turkey again. That's Istanbul up there, isn't it? And then Greece and and Rhodes, which was particularly nice. Um, (laughs) Recommended. And then the final part of this, sort of historically, 59 to 60, Paul is going to get there to Rome. When when, uh, Luke begins his story, he says, Jesus said to the disciples, 'Um, I'll be with you. You'll be my witnesses from Jerusalem, Samaria, and Judea to the ends of the earth. um, I think there's a, a strong argument in that sense that Rome was the, the center of the earth, really, at that time. The center of the empire. And if it gets to Rome through the armies and through the diplomats and through the trade, it'll go all over. And that's exactly what happened. But that's a sort of the time schedule. So by 60, we know there are churches in Rome. When people are reading, when the first readers read Luke, there's two things they know. Paul's dead. And there's no church in Jerusalem now. Because in AD 70, the Romans sort of flattened Jerusalem. And everybody's dispersed, including the church. So when Luke writes about this journey, this mission journey. And when he writes about, in a sense, he's, he's kind of focusing on, on Paul because Paul almost becomes the, the archetypal leader who is in Jerusalem overseeing the death of Stephen, you might remember. Meeting Jesus, doing the traveling, going further and further, crossing These cultural barriers, crossing language barriers, crossing expectations, and then he's going to get to Rome. There's no church in Jerusalem. Paul dies, but churches are opened, and the Gentiles, those people who are not Jewish, have been included. So when we read this section of the book of Acts, what are we doing? Well, there's a couple of things I think that are worth just pointing out before we actually get to read it. And it's just some obvious stuff. I think the, the mission that we have been given the battle for, is, uh, the baton for, is as equally difficult and equally um, hard won as it was then. And I think that the mission, the fight for people's lives, the fight for justice, the fight for a church that actually enables the gospel to be demonstrated is always going to be as difficult as it always was. There's never a moment where we go, yeah, it's so easy, but the story continues and we're part of it. Okay, so let me just pause for a moment. Does all that make sense? <laughs> all right, that's a bit of a sort of like a background blurb, really, but does it kind of, are you with me so far? That's helpful. Yeah. yeah, I think it is, isn't it? Yeah. It kind of just gives you a sense of you know, the decades and, and what's going on. And I think the other thing just to say, the obvious point to say, is that when these churches are being formed, these are really small communities. And even in Rome, these are very small communities in, in these places. But what they are, are these sort of like cells of gospel hope in the midst of the big cities. People who are choosing to follow Jesus and not choosing to go with the culture of their own, of their own day. Okay, so before we get to read, this is um, this is a, the the third missionary journey. If you were with people, if you were here in church last week, then actually you would have uh, read some of this. But what happens is Paul begins a journey in Antioch. Now that place, Antioch, is in the 13th chapter of Acts, but it's, it's kind of like where one of the great churches of the early church was. It's in Antioch, this sending church. And from there, he goes all the way through Turkey, all the way through these churches, strengthening them, starting them, spreading the good news of the gospel all the way around through battles, through good days and bad days, all the way back through Greece and then through the islands. This is where he did put into, um, you know, he goes to cars, he goes to roads and all the way back and he's back Jerusalem. That's a huge journey, to be honest. Uh, Most of it on foot or on donkey, uh, a lot of it obviously on on a boat. But he's back in Jerusalem, and that's where we pick him up in in the reading we're going to do. And What he's done, what is this journey about? Well, this journey is about two things. One thing it's about is actually he's going to strengthen the church, he's going to find Christians, he's going to encourage them to carry on following Jesus, and he's you know, ensuring that new churches are being formed. But the other thing he's doing on this journey is he's collecting money, all right? In every place he's going to here, he's saying to these churches, new churches, will you set aside some of your own income so I can take money back to Jerusalem because in Jerusalem there's a famine, it's kind of like, yeah, well, that's what churches do. They do good things. They, they collect money for people. But it's more than that for Paul. The big deal is Paul wants to say that's where the gospel began. That's where these Jewish people had to really struggle to know what does it mean to worship Jesus. And now the gospel has been included in all of these churches, in these areas. So it's only right that you, as people who have benefited from the gospel, now give back to there. But actually, it wasn't always going to be easy for Paul when he takes the money back because some Jewish people will go, we don't want Gentile money, which might sound a bit odd. But actually, I think some of you might get that. We just don't want to be a charity case. We don't want to have to rely on the Gentiles. Okay. So we're going to read. And actually, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to read a lot of the Bible. All right. So so today is a really good day to actually follow it in the Bible. All right. We're going to start in uh, chapter 21 and verse 17. And what I want to do is read a couple of chapters and then just sort of comment very briefly as we go along. And it's about what happens. So it starts in chapter 21, verse 17. When we... Arrived at Jerusalem, the believers received us warmly. Okay, so are you with me? That's he's done this journey and he's back in Jerusalem. When we get back to Jerusalem, the believers receive us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. And then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. That's a bit of a worry, isn't it? They have believed in Jesus, but they're zealous for the law. In other words, they've got Jesus plus. Jesus plus the law. And they go on and they say, They've been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They'll certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who've made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved then everyone will know there's no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourselves are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You might remember that from Acts 15. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself among them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. Now, I don't know if you find that a little odd. If you've read the book of Galatians, if you've read the book of Romans, if you know anything about Paul, then actually what they were accusing him of is pretty true. You don't need law and Jesus. You need Jesus. So when they come, when Paul gets there into Jerusalem, and they say, this is what they've said about you. They said that you just have got no time for Moses. And what that meant was it wasn't just a sort of a religious argument. What they were saying was, you are breaking out the ethnic culture of what it means to be part of the people of God. So why does Paul, when they say to him, how are we going to handle this? i tell you what, we've got four men who are going to take them purification rites and they're going to spend some time in the temple. Will you shave your head, part of the rite? Will you go with them? Will you pay for them? And will you spend seven days in this purification rite in the temple to prove that you've not left the law behind? Why does Paul do it? So he's kind of assimilating. He's assimilating back in. He's kind of joining in. Any other reasons why Paul might do this? Yeah. So he's following the law. He's not, not writing to Gentiles. Not abolishing. He's actually willing to do that. Anybody else? Why do you think he does it? I don't know if this is too simplistic. I think Paul is willing to walk over broken glass... For the sake of unity. I don't think Paul would have chosen to do this. I don't think Paul did it for his own sake. I think this is what Paul did for the sake of someone else. I think Paul will walk over broken glass for the sake of unity. Paul would have quite easily just said, I'm not going to do it. I don't believe in it. It's not necessary. Let's just go with Jesus. But actually in this context, he does. Well, verse 27, when the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and they seized him, shouting, people of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple. He's defiled this holy place they previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul, and assumed Paul had brought me into the temple. You, you, it kind of rings so true, doesn't it? The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. They, immediately, the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman um, of the Roman troops, that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. And when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Let's just pause for a moment. Oh, Actually, let's not. Let's carry on. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. And then he asked who he was and what he'd done. And some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. And when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. And as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? And Paul said, no, I'm a theologian. Paul said, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, their own language, in other words. Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew. I'm born in the towns of Silesia, but I was brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison, as the high priest and all the council of themselves can testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people to, uh, as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished." About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and I heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I'm Jesus of Nazareth whom you're persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told all that you've been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because of the brilliance of the light that binded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. And then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you've seen and heard. And now what what you're waiting for, get up, be baptized and wash your sin away, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. Quick, he said, leave Jerusalem immediately because the people here will not accept your testimony about me. Lord, I replied, these people know that I went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then the Lord said to me, go, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. That's one of those verses you don't underline. But can you see what's gone on? In the city, there's a city. In other words, Paul starts by saying, okay, I'll take the vow. I'll walk over broken glass. But of course, for the people who come and want to stir up trouble for him, it's not enough. And so they, they get a mob violence going. And, and we've seen this. You see this on your news when you watch in other cities uh, around uh, the world where people gather and they burn the flag or they burn books. Or, and we've seen it in the U.K., you know how this sort of stuff happens. And so Paul says, can I speak? And what Paul does is he tells his story. And what really interesting is this is the second time that Luke has told Paul's story in full. So why does Paul tell his own story? Well, he wants to prove that actually the Messiah has called him. But of course, in telling his story, he's not trying just to pacify people. In telling his story, he's saying, God's got a desire for the Gentiles. It's not just you. And that's why they want to kill him he tells his story. Let's read on. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. If you were a commander at that time dealing with this, you must be absolutely cheesed off with Paul. you just want him out of your city, wouldn't you, essentially, and that's what's going to happen. He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this as they stretched him out to flog him. Paul said to the centurion standing there, this is brilliant. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? <laughs> I hope you can see it. All right, he's been brought in. He's now extended. They're winding up the whip. The whip. And he goes to the centurion standing. By "By the way, can I ask you a question? Is this legal? (laughs) It is Monty Python. The commander went to Paul and said, "Tell me, are you a Roman citizen?" "Yes, I am," he answered. And then the commander said, "I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen." Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he'd put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chain. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. And He brought Paul and he set him before him. There's a mob riot and interestingly... Paul doesn't turn the other cheek. He doesn't say, okay, well, this is the price you pay. At the moment, for absolute maximum effect, he goes, are you supposed to be able to do this? And he uses his credentials. So the commander, they let him go. And they say, but we're going to send you to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin with this sort of the Jewish, um, the Jewish law court. So what you've got in Jerusalem in, in Israel at that time, you've got the Romans who are sort of like the occupying powers, but they, they kept in place these little sort of local courts um, so they could deal with their own. The, the Romans don't want to get involved in theological debate. That's the point. They go, let that happen to the Sanhedrin. Let them get involved. So we read on. Paul's in court before the Sanhedrin, verse, no, verse 30. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I fulfilled uh, my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewash wall. You sit there and judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I didn't realize he was the high priest. For it's written, Don't speak evil about the rule of your people. Now, you've got a choice to make right now. And nobody really knows the answer to this. Did Paul know the chief high priest? they kind of wore robes that would set them out. If you you made it to high priest, you didn't want to sort of like go in disguise. You had robes to wear. So when Ananias says to his sort of henchmen, hit him, and Paul gets his sort of mouth back, does Paul know? Well, some people have said, well, one of the things we kind of know about Paul is that his eyesight was going... Really? Maybe you just didn't see. Mm. Or maybe Paul did. Maybe what Paul's saying at that point is, you wear the uniform of the high priest, but you're no high priest, brother. (laughs) You're no high priest. And Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee. These are the two sort of tribes. I'm a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. That's a very clever thing to say when you've got Pharisees and Sadducees because the Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead and the Sadducees really don't. And when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection and there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent. The commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Paul's in court. Paul refuses to be intimidated. He slapped. He gives a really direct answer back. And in a court where he knows how to play it, he plays the division. I love this idea of Paul's there and it's like he's on trial and suddenly he says, I'm only here because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it's like Paul standing there going, well, you did work this out yourself, boys. And then finally, the following night, The Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they'd killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, we've taken a solemn vow not to eat anything till we've killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, so his nephew, he went into the barracks and told Paul. And Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the commander. He's something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, the Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring you this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and said, what is it you want to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting to know more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed him. They're ready now, waiting for your consent to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with the warning: "Don't let anyone that you've report, um, don't tell anyone that you've reported this to me." And he called two of his centurions and ordered them, "Get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine, nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul, so he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. following To his excellency, Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I'd learned that he's a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found out the accusations had to do with questions about the law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisoned. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the men, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with him during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. Let me show you where that is. So uh, they've been in Jerusalem down here and they get to Caesarea. That's how far they've gone. So they're just getting out of the city. That's where they've taken him. Um, The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and they handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that it was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. And then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. When the assassination plot became apparent, then Paul is no fool. Paul gets out. When his nephew comes and says, there's 40 of them that want to kill you, Paul says, it's time to leave. Now you read all of this, and there's two things that I was thinking. One is, In the midst of all of this coming and going, in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of all this turmoil, God says one thing to Paul. And this is it. It's right in the middle. In the middle of the night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you've testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. Paul's not in control of anything that's happening to him. But God comes and stands with him and says, Paul, when I put my hand on you all those years ago, I haven't taken my hand off you. The call I gave you is the call that's still on your life. The thing I've asked you to do, I still want you to do. I have not left you. The Lord comes and stands next to him. And you would be, you would be, Excused for thinking that perhaps Paul just thought, Do you know, what a mess. It was going so well. Why didn't I stay? Why didn't I? <laughs> it was going so well. It was, why didn't I stay? Why didn't I stay in one of those churches that really loved me? It's not the sleeping, it's the snoring. Why didn't I stay? And what Paul needed to hear was that God hadn't left him. What Paul needed to hear was that God still had plans for him. And what Paul needed to hear was it wouldn't end in tragedy. And when, Paul, when the Lord stands near Paul, that's what Paul hears. One of the things, and this is kind of like the last thing I want to say, Most of us live not with the extreme of this, but most of you know times when life feels like this, when it feels like a mess, when it feels like everything that can go wrong is going wrong, when it feels like actually God isn't involved in this because He couldn't be. Because look, I'm imprisoned, I've got people against me, it's, things are not going well. Things are not the way they thought they'd be. It's one of the, one of the inaccurate um, equations that we make as Christians is that if God's really with you, everything will be smooth. And here you have Luke telling a story at length to say that the Lord's still standing with Paul in the midst of all of this, even when it's such a mess. But Paul is no puppet. Paul will walk over broken glass to keep the peace. But he will use his own story to directly tell people who he is and why he is as he is. Paul is not afraid and he has no pushover. Paul will use his credentials. He refuses to be intimidated. But when push comes to shove, when there's a moment where he thinks, actually, I've gone as far as I can, he will get out. He will say to his nephew, go and tell the commander now, because actually this is now very serious. Let's leave. And what Paul is doing is that work of discernment in the midst of the ver- his very shaky situation. You read Luke telling the story of Paul, and Luke is spending a lot of time with this material, and I don't know about you, but when I'm even reading this on my own sometimes, in time gone by, I've read this stuff and I've kind of like glazed over because kind of, I've got no idea what's happening right now. And because for many of us, we've, we've sort of grown up thinking that you just got to read the Bible for little bits at a time, you know, I like, will just read four verses, um, that you've got no chance of understanding what's going on here. You've got to read big chunks of it. But when you start to see that, then I'm, what I'm hearing Luke go is, the story of the church is not as simple as you think, and it's not as straightforward, and the story of people's lives in the church are not straightforward as you might think. It doesn't always go A plus B plus C plus D. But God's purpose is worked out. It's God's got a plan and purpose here. God hasn't given up. God doesn't go, "Oh, what a disaster." It's not, maybe not what you would have chosen. I don't think Paul would have chosen this at all. And in fact, it's going to get worse before it gets better for Paul. But God's standing near him, saying, I've not forgotten you. It's the detail of our lives. And it's in the detail of our lives that God stands with us. For some of you, you're in context and you're not sure how things are going to work out. And it feels like a mess. The Lord stands near you and says, when you bowed your knee to me, when I put my hand on you, I haven't taken it off. Some of you are not sure whether you've made the right decision or the wrong decision about this or that or the other. And some things have just happened to you and you didn't even get a choice about it. But God continues to. His purpose through this. I think the reason Luke writes this in so much detail is to encourage the church, the churches who felt like that and the people who felt like that and maybe people like us. If you stuck with me, thank you. Well done. When you get to heaven, this is one of the ones you go, I did that for you, Jesus. (laughs) Susie, as as the band come back, let's pray together. For those of you that kind of understand what that all feels like, I want to pray that you will know the presence of Jesus standing with you it's kind of like three long chapters and one verse about the Lord being there. And it may feel like that. It just may like feel like three long chapters of stuff. But what you need is the one verse where you know God is standing with you. Lord, will you do that for those of us who need it this morning? I want to pray for those who, in a work context, it's just really difficult to work out why we're there or what we're doing or what you're asking of us. And particularly for those people who feel like they're just being pushed from pillar to post by other people. Lord, will you be the one who will remind them of your presence? Would you stand near them? Would you speak to them? Would you remind them that your hand is upon them? Lord, for those of us who are in situations with families and it feels the same, where things are happening around us that we have no control over and people are saying things and doing things that hurt, that damage. Lord, will you give us wisdom to know what to do? Lord, may we know you're standing near us. Lord, will you give us wisdom to know how to deal with situations that we're in, the times when we have to walk over broken glass for others and the times when actually... We need to be firm and not intimidated and as wise as serpents, as harp, harmless as, uh, as doves. Give us wisdom, we pray. And Lord, for those of us who might be caught in toxic situations, Lord, help us to know when it's moments to say, okay, I'm out of here. Lord, all of this is really about wisdom and about hearing you. Lord, will you help us, we pray, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus.